episode is brought to you by Squash Clothing and Sugar Life. Welcome to the Overly Excited Podcast, hosted by Jack Watts and Dale Sidebottom. Two friends with a passion for life, learning... And all things that get them jumping out of their seats. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is episode number nine of the Overly Excited Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom, joined by Jack Watts, my amazing co-host. And today we have got James Greenshield, the one and only superstar. James, how are you, my friend? Mate, I'm damn epic today. <laughs> Very epic. <laughs> I'm episode nine, Dale. We're getting closer to that episode 10 that most people drop off at. We are. We're getting to those double digits, which is really exciting. Now, James, we're going to share your story, the work you're doing. Um, if, the, if anyone's got a more inspirational story in life about coming back from probably I couldn't even imagine what you're going to talk about coming back from. But um, before we do that, this is the excited arena. What gets you jumping out of your seat excited, mate? Uh, seeing people shine, seeing people lead from their heart, open their heart, be vulnerable. But I don't ask people to be vulnerable. I ask people to be open because vulnerability in the back of the mind, the subconscious mind actually sets up a bit of defensive mechanism. But if when a person is just truly open, truly themselves, they're a shining beacon. And if I can help them do that and break down the barriers that they've got inside themselves to to do that, mate, I am literally feeling electric. Yeah. Bloody hard to be open and be yourself, isn't it? With pressures and expectations and you're trying to be, you know, someone to a certain people or you're trying to impress your parents. It's it's not easy to do, that's for sure. Easier said than done, James. It and that's the point. You know, exactly, it's yeah. like those things, you know, you go through life and you do something really hard and you get to the end of it and you're sweating, your Gunter's just been dragged behind you for the last however many kilometers and you look back and you just go, wow, what did I just accomplish? And, you know, that could be something physically hard. It could be something in which, you, you know, you've, you've dragged your, your company out of the, the mud and you've full of sudden got them singing, um, You've been witnessing your child go through, you know, the dark night of the souls for a long time through their teenage years. And, and all of a sudden you're now seeing them fly and you've just been that, that pillar of, you know, that rock for them It's all that different type of stuff where you've seen through, uh, through heart, like I won't say hardship because you've got to be very careful about hardship. Generally hardships linked to, um, to the mindset in which we approach it. But, uh, when we, when we literally put our heart and soul and we really commit we'll get this deep sense of accomplishment. And that's, for me, that's like literally been my life. I've figured out that um, I've, I've witnessed a few things in life and, <laughs> and what I tend to do is like, I come along to the swimming pool, I, I bypass the shallow end straight away and I look at the deep end and go, oh, <laughs> and then I dive in and then I hit the bottom and I go, bugger, I better figure out how to swim pretty quick. And, uh, and yeah, so, and at the end of it, you know, when I am swimming, it's like, it's just magical. Um, talk about obviously jumping in the deep end, mate, and uh, hardship and, and an epic journey uh, for listeners before, and I'm sure they're already captivated by, you know, what we're already speaking about. And I know the conversation will keep flowing there. Um, but can you just give listeners a little bit, and I know it's there's so much to talk about, but a little bit about your background and your story to get where you are now, um, because you've had so many different not personalities, but different moments and times in your life. It's like you're, it's like you're the seven dwarfs. You've got seven different personalities or something. But um, can you just explain, you know, from being in the army and and the the situations that you were in there, and then coming back? And um, I think 
well, I know I've heard this multiple times and I'm very fortunate. Um, even when I do hear it again, it just, oh, mate, your story is motivating and inspiring. Um, and I think it'll paint the picture for the listeners. So if you can uh, do that again, that would be superb, please. Awesome. I'm drawn back to um, just quickly saying that I, I grew up in a central Victorian sheep and cattle farm um, to a father who was an amazing guy, Vietnam veteran, chaplain to the Army, Police, Country, Fire Authority, a normal priest and a farmer, never really left the land, um, which is really hard to try and comprehend how a bloke could do that and to try and comprehend who my father was is, is quite hard anyway. Uh, but I just idolized him and really look up, looked up to him. But the thing is, I also developed an absent father syndrome because he was always out there helping everyone else. And at times, I just felt he wasn't there for me. He was a bit older. He's 41 um, when I was born. Um, there was 17 years difference between mum and him. So on my 17th birthday, I went up to, to dad and said, hey, guess what, mate? And he said, what? And I said, my wife's just been born. And I had to duck <laughs> a, a rainmaker. <laughs> but, but um, I, I just I, I really idolised him. And, and I'll go home. He passed 20 years ago today. Uh, sorry, 20 years ago this year. Um, I'll go home to, to Seymour and people will still mention dad. Um, and they'll talk about something that he did for them or help them with. And, and realistically, he was a bit of a, what I would refer to as a spiritual portal for people to come and do a lot of healing. Often as a kid, I'd walk past my lounge room and things were quiet in the lounge room. I knew I wasn't allowed in there because dad was there with someone and there'd be smoke because dad was the padre with a pipe. There'd be smoke coming out of the lounge room and, and they'd be next to the fire and dad was just doing his thing, you know, and uh, an amazing guy. People would come to him um, for and if they had issues with their sheep or their cattle, they'd go and, and say, hey, Alan, can I can I sit and have a cuppa? And he'd say, yeah, sure. So they'd come over. Out of the four major pastoralists of the area um, of his generation, he's the only one to die of natural causes, which I think is fundamental like um, illustration of what can happen in the country. Um, you just look at you know the depression rates in the country at the moment. So from there, but by, by 14, I couldn't actually be in the same room as the dude. Like we were, <laughs> we were so at each other's throat. Um, and as a young bull trying to prove myself, I didn't realize in my adversary relationship to him, I was actually trying to prove myself to him. Um, and so, you know, I would stand up and challenge him and he would flare because he had post-traumatic stress from Vietnam. I mean, this is a guy who would, didn't like picking us up from the school bus run because um, when he was in Vietnam, he's doing a lot of work with orphans and he put all these orphans on a bus and he was the first one there to react to the bus as it completely exploded in flames in front of his face, um, killing every single child on there. And one of them was actually going to adopt. And so he sat at the school bus going through just complete anxiety and panic attacks. And so for me, I didn't know this. He didn't tell me this as a kid. But he'd get me in the ute and then we'd drive back and he'd give me a spider, like, you know, when they do Coke and ice cream. <laughs> yeah. And like, we never got Coke as a kid. Like, it was always in the mix, in, in the drinks fridge, never, never in the, the rest of the kitchen. And, and I'd be going, yeah, this is awesome. I just want dad to pick me up more often. And <laughs> then we go out and we check the sheep and stuff like that. And I, he told me when I, when I finally joined the military, he actually told me what was happening for him. And like, it was just this really deep moment of connection between the two. But he said to me when I was young, about 10, because he was going through another depressive episode, he, he said, mate, do you want the property? Because it was 2,000 acres, so it was a viable um, place. But um, 
he knew that mum and dad knew that I probably wasn't going to go back onto the farm. They knew I was destined for something else. As a matter of fact, they thought it was the priesthood. But anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> um, uh, the he looked at me and he goes, "Do you want the farm?" And I and I just said, mm, "I don't know." And he says, "Well, if you do, you've got to go away and you've got to earn your own stripes because you can't just take over. You've got to go away and become James Greenshields because otherwise you're just going to be Alan Greenshields' son." Now, that was one of the first seeds that really helped me later in life. When he wasn't around, he had seeded me as a young personality to have these things germinate when I really needed them at the crucial moments in my life. And that was one really big seed. Another one was we were feeding out a, a mob of Angus cattle and an old 1974 Tidal Land Cruiser Trayback and a bunch of hay on it and we used to just kick it into gear and um, stand on the back feet out and then someone would jump around and kick it out of gear and it would stop and I just kicked it out of gear I was about eight eight and I jumped back up on the on the back and he's just looking out at this old bush block and he's just mesmerized and he's just in a space and for once I didn't say anything and he just swept his hand across the bush view and he said there's my god and I've I was young and eight and I wasn't spiritually mature enough to understand what he was talking about. But he then looked down at me and he said, you've got to go and find your own. Now that didn't comprehend to me because that didn't correlate to anything that I've been taught in religious education or buddy, um, you know, going to Sunday school or any other, that, that was completely left field. And again, that was another seed. Those two moments in time really came pivotal for me later in life. So we couldn't be together for, you know, when I was 14. So I disappeared to boarding school four years down in the middle of Melbourne um, where I, dad and I within four weeks became best mates because we'd been given space to be ourselves. And so from boarding school, um, you know, I was a, a bit of a larrikin. Uh, they used to get me in if the cricket ball went up on the third story roof because I used to just scale drain pipes and just get up and grab the cricket ball and stuff like that. I was very, I loved pushing limits. That's what I really loved pushing limits in my life. And then um, joined the military straight out of, out of an all-male boarding school. So I then joined the military. So for 17 years, I was an army officer. So you can imagine pretty much by 33, I am a literally an institutionalized moron in every single possible way you can think about it. And, uh, it, like the, the military was to me, it was like, it was a natural calling. I mean, there's a photo on mum's wall of me being at four years of age. Um, and there's an armored personnel carrier coming in the back paddock to the shearing shed. And that, that personnel carrier is from, um, B squadron, second cavalry regiment. The next photo on the wall is me leading B squadron, second cavalry regiment into its first wartime deployment 30 years later. So, you know, people would say that I was destined to do what I did. Um, had an amazing uh, time in the military. Yeah, ups and downs. Like I suffered workplace harassment, was um, abused by my first boss, uh, went through a whole suite of bullying experiences throughout the military, which is not uncommon. Um, and I couldn't figure that out until later in life. But all in all, like I had this just amazing time. Saw tours in East Timor. And then finally, 2006 and seven, uh, I got the honor of leading what's called a combat team, Combat Team Eagle into Iraq. Um, which is an organization around 110 plus uh, people, um, about 30 armored vehicles. And we were there for about seven and a half months. And like, I really learned so much about how people operate under intense situations. Um, it was the the culmination of all this training that we'd done 
um, for because I had to I had to form that organization. And I did uh, I formed them over about ten months of training, uh, and that training was really intense. Like, and I was really focused and got them to be absolutely brilliant at the basics. And always anything they did had to have an operational outcome. They had to be thinking about what would be happening on the ground in Iraq if they drew a pistol. And they would never draw a pistol unless they were around a vehicle because a pistol it was given to Armored Corps crewmen for the actual protection of the vehicle, not for anything else. But people had forgotten some of these basic things. And so I was bringing back these basic understandings. And, and I was really strict about that. I, I had a, a big standard that I insisted on, like chin straps, for instance. Um, a lot of people would drive around with these helmets on and the chin strap just dangling around. Uh, and I insisted, do your chin strap up? And they look at me, oh, boss, 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 you know what? It's just a chin strap. That, that one thing saved my head. Literally, the reason why, I mean, this is an okay face, um, <laughs> that, that my face wasn't completely removed was because I had my chin strap done up, um, which brings me on to the 23rd of April, 2007, where uh, it was a really pivotal day. Like, there's a lot going on. I could have actually died three times um, in the, the 24 hours preceding uh, it was hit by roadside bomb. Um, it was about, imagine five kilos of TNT and so about 20 kilos of TNT packed into a five um, litre paint container that had a copper sheath where the lid would be and it was in convex shape. It detonates and it, and it um, turns into a, a convex, sorry, a, a concave, um, no concave and convex, a convex slug which flies at um, 3,000 metres a second for six metres and it will literally remove anything in the battlefield including a 64 tonne Abrams tank these things just go. And so my vehicle was a 14.1 ton armored vehicle called an Aslav. Um, the thing that they did though, is they packed too much explosive into the bomb. So it went big, butter boom, lifted the whole 14.1 ton armored vehicle off the ground. Uh, but it splintered. So the reason why I'm talking to you today is because they just got a bit overzealous when they were making the bomb in the, um, in the garage <laughs> and which is what they did. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so, and this is but one of three that they, they, they literally, we were going more technical. They went more rudimentary and they won every single time because they went rudimentary and we just, we didn't see that necessarily. And the only way you could defeat this bomb was just not by being there. And I forgot to read that part of the, the brief, <laughs> but, um, so, so, I mean, that started, it started a lot of things in life. It was a big wake up call and, yeah, you know, I got home from Iraq. I developed post-traumatic stress seven day or seven weeks, pretty much afterwards. I remember the day actually that it set in um, quite vividly. I was in a uh, our neighbours had really supported Kirsty and my oldest daughter Abby, who was only ten months old when I deployed. Um, and I had bonded with Abby before I deployed. I was too busy fixated on preparing my soldiers, um, and at a subconscious level, I had a deep fear that I didn't have what it took to lead them into combat and bring them all home alive. Um, and so the way that played out was um, overcompensation in work ethic by always being there before sunup and coming home after sundown, um, reading inordinate amounts of military doctrine, uh, which I, I report distinctively is boring as batshit. Um, <laughs> and like pretty much if I had gone home a couple of nights a week and read Thomas the Tank Engine, I simply would have been in a better headspace, but I didn't because of this internal drive that was caused by a, wound, a subconscious wounding of not feeling enough. 
um, not feeling capable of doing it. And, and literally, you know, I looked at my soldiers every morning on parade and there was 110 there and I knew their mums and dads, their wives, their kids. And over time, that wide responsibility of life really settled very, very, very heavily on my shoulders. Um, and I, I took that responsibility. I took it to heart, but also uh, it at one point it became a bit crippling until I had to really break that all down, change my mentality, my mindset as to how I was approaching the job. But when I got home, I then looked, at, like I got a flashback at the whole tour that we'd done the reason why we'd been sent, which actually was different to the way that one they told us, um, and just a whole heap of suite of things uh, came together. And then the the bomb, just witnessing it almost, I looked at my daughter who was then, by then she was 18 months old and like she was almost uh, without a father. And she, like my wife was almost a widow. And I started to ask these questions because like I said, at the age of four, I knew I was going into the military. And I, my big penultimate tour where I put everything I'll put everything on the line and I, I put all my training and everything that I was living for um, to task. It, it demonstrated the falsity of that actual belief system, um, which is nothing to do with the military. It's all to do with me inside because of what the military archetypally represents, which is the most professional, altruistic endeavor for the protection of those I love. For me, that's what the military really represents. It represents professionalism. It represents mastery. It represents looking after those I love in in the most the biggest form. Um, but I didn't know that when I was in the military. I was just doing what I felt I was called to do. So uh, in the end, I, I get out with post traumatic. I knew I had to leave the military. Um, the the values that they were illustrating and the values that they were telling me that they were wanting to illustrate were two distinctly divergent things. Um, and again, that's nothing to do with the military. It's absolutely everything to do with me. That's a choice. Do I stay in an organization which I believe um, is putting myself into a place where I have to to violate my values, which therefore would mean that I'm violating my integrity, or do I to step out? And that's just my own choice. It's no one else's choice. Um, I've got some great mates that are still in the military, and and they're just cruising on, doing their own awesome thing. You know, they're amazing people. Um, so yeah, that was in 2010, and then um, I got out. And I, I had post-traumatic stress. I didn't tell anyone in the military. I, I got depression started really creeping in because I wasn't getting any help. Um, and it, it all came to a, a really culminating moment in time when Abs was two. Abby's my oldest daughter. Um, Abby was two. Um, I, I was still in the military at the time. I was actually attending a thing called Australian Commander Staff College, which is like promotion course to Lieutenant Colonel, the next rank, which is a year-long university course. And you had to be specifically selected I did really well on that course. It set up the next five years of my my life pretty much, um, which would, would have been an amazing military career because I was a high-performing depression and, and, um, and trauma case. So I, at work, I really had a high performance level. So no one in the military knew what was going on for me. But I came home one night and, and Kirst goes, can you bath Abby? And so I was bathing and we were mucking around having a good old time, which didn't really happen that much because of post-traumatic stress. Because more more often than not, they're walking on eggshells. And uh, Kirsty yells out from the kitchen. She says, dinner's ready. And so I just looked at Abs and I said, can you just put the toys in the basket? And she did what any like two-year-old kid having fun with dad would do. And that's muck around. Just take her time. I went from zero to a thousand degrees Celsius, like in a nanosecond. I had to put the basket down and get the hell out of that room before I did something I'd really, truly regret. 
a storm past cursed. And are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. I said, you go and sort that fucking kid out. I can't. That's actually what I said about my daughter. And I went and stood in my front of her. We had a full-length mirror um, in our bedroom. And I went and stood in front of that. And I just looked myself up and down. And I, I did not recognize myself. I said, James, you can take bullets. You can take bombs. You can't even bath your own two-year-old daughter. You're not a husband. You're not, a, you're not even a man. And I, re- I couldn't cry. There was literally hollowness in me. I'd lost myself that much. And uh, I turn around and there's Kirsty silhouetted in the door for another conversation. And we sat on the bed and she said, I can't do this anymore. She said, um, if you don't get help, I'm going to take, by this stage, we've got two girls. I'm going to take the girls and I'm going to leave. And I said, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Like I'm a master at fixing shit for everyone else. I just don't know what's going on. And she said, well, there's a guy and I, I really recommend you come and listen to. It took me three months to get to him. And I went through every, like I got fevers. I got massive, massive ailments came through. I was on three courses of antibiotics, had to postpone three times just because at a subconscious level, I had so much resistance that came out in my physicality. And uh, I finally got to him and uh, I just looked this guy in the eye. And f- it was the Sydney Masonic Centre of all places in a crowd of 300 people. Kirsty says, leave your emotional baggage at the door. And I said, what fucking emotional baggage? I don't have any emotional baggage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, anyway, I sat there for three days as if this guy had been for the last 12 months in my living room. He knew me better than I knew myself. And he talked emotions, and but he was a bloke. He was an Australian bloke who knew emotions. And I'm just going, this guy's a revelation. Um, and he'd been through his own life trauma and his education was from the street, but more than that. Um, and I knew he could help us and, you know, we didn't have the money to do the program. And so I said, yeah, we do. We've got two investment properties. She said, they're for our future. And I said, babe, we do not have a future if we don't get out of this. Uh, and I really want you to do the program with me. This is not about me. This is about us. And she, she knew straight away. She she was in. So we sold both investment properties and, and um, <laughs> you know, some would say that we signed ourselves into poverty, but no, we didn't. We signed, our, we signed ourselves into liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we spent uh, overall in, in about two years, we spent $120,000 on ourselves. And it was the best, best investment I could possibly because I'm alive. And my daughters have a father who I was witnessing my 15 year old daughter, who's my youngest one, um, Penelope. Um, she's taken my ability with words to a whole new level and put it to music and poetry. And she's really now the next evolution of the Green Shields clan. She's incredible. Um, and I witnessed to say to uh, a person that I've just been working with and um, who came in to work with me, um, she said, I've never witnessed, but when I was young, I saw dad angry. But from, from a very early age, dad's never been out of control. Like, I've, I'm not afraid of my father. And really, that really touched me. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I don't need external validation anymore. Like I've gone through that for fuck's sake. I was in the military, which is all about external validation. And if they say, no, it's not, then watch their eyes on Anzac Day. They'll go straight to a person's chest. And it's about the, the medals and the ranketh make us the man. It's a, it's a little maxim within the actual institution. Um, 
external validation is, is rampant right through society. It's not just the military. Uh, and I just witnessed my daughter say that. And it was just such a gift that an acknowledgement of, of the path that I've chosen since then. Because I've given my family every reason not to be with me. But we've got a loving family unit. One's 17 and one's, uh, one's 15. And um, they know where Home Tree is. And they know the solidity of Home Tree. But they know they don't have to be here. Like I've talked to them from from the, the age that they were 10. I said, if I die today, you've got life. I know that was, as we were talking about that conversation the other day too with my oldest. Uh, she said that, that was a really emotional conversation. She, one, she didn't want to have the age of 10, but it actually set her up now. Mm. Like she can be on the street in Byron Bay and someone can try and do something to her. And good luck to them. <laughs> good luck to them. Because, <laughs> you know, she's just, she's a dynamo. And she can look after herself. She does not need me to chaperone her. And the immature archetype in the male is the protector. The mature archetype is the space holder. And I've become a master of space holding from the three women in my life. I always said I'd never get a female dog. We've just got a bloody female Labrador. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, a warrior knows which battles to, to fight to go to winning the war. And that one, I, there was no no worrying about fighting. Um, so, yeah, it's been an amazing journey for me to um, build myself in a way in which I thought everyone wanted me, the expectations of my family, the world, society, um, joining the military, uh, and then that to crumble in my face to to actually have to go through the real initiation in life, which is to to fully crash. Now, go back to those two seeds that my father said. The first one was I was going back to my life in 2010. I, I'd made the decision. I was sitting on the couch and my two daughters had just gone outside. Um, there was there were five and, and two and a half. And they were just bumbling like amazing bundles of joy. But every time I felt I engaged the family, I felt I bought hurt. And I was feeling so much guilt and shame about who I was that I'd labeled myself as such a dark entity and such so much pain and my wife loved me intensely but i couldn't receive that love because my heart was so closed because it was in so much pain i decided that i needed to go for them i needed to kill myself for them and when i was just about to get up from the couch the story of being on the back of the 1974 to land cruiser with the angus cattle behind me came to me and dad said you need to go and find your own god and in that moment, I realized, hold on, James, the job ain't done yet. You haven't pursued this to the nth degree yet. There's still more to come. And that that story from being eight years of age saved my life at the age of 35. And then a couple of years later, I'm sitting at the, the kitchen table after running a workshop for some people and and just um, being in so much gratitude at the skills that I developed uh, in the emotional stakes through emotional literacy and emotional intimacy and being able to facilitate that to help people understand them better and get clarity in life, to let go of demons, which they no longer need, to basically come home, as I call it. I call it a journey of coming home. And I'm really sitting there in gratitude and awe for what life has presented me. And the story of dad saying, you need to go away and earn your own stripes came to me. And my father was a priest who did that in his own way. He brought critical incident stress management to the Victorian police in the 80s. He attended every single fatal accident on the Hume Highway from 100 kilometres north of Seymour right down to the outskirts of Melbourne. 
And he then debriefed with the emergency police and emergency services. He was the chief debriefer there. Um, and I found his notes the other day and I looked at his notes and I, I kid you not, it's like, I never saw them before, never did the same training or anything like that, but dad developed them. And there's the whole point. This it's very, very similar to what I did. And my mum in 2016 said to me, um, dad had passed some time before. She says, really sorry that your dad wasn't here when you got back from Iraq. And out of my mouth came these words that it said, mum, if he was, I never would have recovered from post-traumatic stress. Because a person can only ever help you heal to the level of healed themselves. And what I got in that moment was a deep gift from my father that he'd given me the gauntlet of life that he'd gone through. And he, he said, James, I've taken this as far as I can, my dude. It's your job now to take it to where you need to because you've blooded, just blooded yourself. You've initiated yourself. You've, you've allowed yourself to gain the skills through life experience to take this gauntlet and really heal us. So, yeah. In essence, that's the long-winded answer to your oh, short question. <laughs> There's a bit to unpack oh, there, so, isn't there? That's too much. Oh, you can go first, Okay. No, well, thank you very much for sharing, first of all. Um, Rocky, what a what a life, what a journey. I guess, like, for me, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, I can't imagine the feeling of hearing your eldest, you know, what she said about never feeling scared of her dad and, and I guess looking back at, you know, when she was two years old and the the space that you were in then and where that could have gone if you hadn't have gone and got your help, you know, I guess mm. that's probably, it's a scary thought I'd imagine because it sounds like you weren't in a great place, but to go and do the work and that's what I sort of take from this. You sound like a very, to me, like intellectual, James, like you love reading, um, taking things in and learning. And I feel like, obviously you did that with the army and you were a master at what you did. And then you obviously got into a tough spot and PTSD. I don't even understand it. I'd love to hear more about it, but you know, I can't imagine what that's like, but it seems like then once you decided on, I need to get better, you just threw yourself into it completely. And that education and understanding of, okay, what am I actually going through? Why am I feeling these emotions? Um, can you tell me a little bit more about, I guess, like, um, is that sort of how you saw it? Did you feel like, um, you know, I guess that education of going to get help, was that, the you know, the biggest turning point, obviously? And what were some key moments working with this guy? Jack, that's epic. Great questions. Um, you're dead right. In, uh, and that's probably one of the better, from my podcast that I've done, that's probably one of the more astute observations of who I am. So I just want to acknowledge your insight into people. That's awesome. Um, no wonder you're just about to go into your 10th podcast. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you, you know, you're dead right. It's like two things. Um, I'm the type of person that, that will throw myself in and really desire to understand it, but I want to break down how I've experienced it. So please don't throw me a theory uh, without it having any form of practical application. So, you know, I've educated myself in heart science, um, psychology, archetypal psychology, depth psychology, lots of different aspects of psychology. Um, I've, I've gone right into emotional literacy. I understand the difference between, I, I don't use the term emotional intelligence. I like Mayer and Silvery and Goldman. I think they're amazing individuals and intellects. Um, but if you think about intelligence, where does it live in the heart or the head? Intelligence. Mm. Oh, where does it live? In our brain. In, in your brain exactly yeah. right you can't think yourself through an emotion yeah. 
which is one of the reasons why cognitive behavior therapy has been shown to be only slightly effective. Um, and so the, the point about it is the sages of old will always say that the longest journey in the world is from 14 inches from your head to your heart. Um, and so I needed to go in and I needed to feel the emotion, but I didn't need to relive the experience of being hit by the roadside bomb or any of the other traumas that I faced in life. Um, there's a form of therapy called exposure therapy in which I've helped a lot of people actually unravel the, the, the reinforcing that at times exposure therapy done incorrectly, um, will cause, uh, whereas the emotion needs to be unraveled from the situation, like the, the image, which is a five sensory image, sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell wrapped in the subconscious mind with entwined with a, with a negative emotion, which is therefore causing the trauma. So the negative emotion needs to be felt cleansed, purified, and let go of for the five sensory image to be allowed to be seen from a different perspective, to be alchemized into or transmuted into um, an ability to actually see the lesson, the gift from the experience. And then I must transcend the wound so that I can actually then integrate the lesson or the gift. I, should, I integrate the, the lesson to become the gift, which there becomes the foundation stone of the rest of my life. So um, trauma is, in essence, is when that my framework of understanding of life is is literally excuse the term uh, explodes in front of my face, and I'm a bit of an expert. <laughs> part of the pun. <laughs> part of the pun. Uh, but you probably pick up the fact that you know I can speak so openly and fluidly about a day I almost died. Um, yeah. I've gone through post traumatic stress recovery, through post traumatic growth. Um, into a place where the story doesn't even matter to me anymore. And the reason why I remember it so much is because I get asked to recall it so re regularly. Um, if there's a left field question, sometimes I really have to think about what went on uh, because I've let that go because memory has an emotional attachment and the bigger memories have the bigger emotional attachment, be positive or negative. Um, so if it's a really dark, deep, negative one, it will come up. And so if you're in a negative mindset, you'll often bring more negative minds, um, memories up which, you know, a lot of Dale's work knows all about this because of, you know, the way you, you, you're setting the, the physiological experience to the mental experience, to the emotional experience, et cetera. Um, as you can pick up, I've done a lot. I, I knew I was in pain. I had to, first, the first thing I had to do was put my hand up. I had to own it. And in owning it, I, had, I went through a period of self-judgment and self-flagellation. So self-abuse because of my self-awareness increasing. You're telling me I did what? You're telling me I bought, like, I, I attracted this situation in my life? You're telling me that I manifested all this stuff because of my subconscious programs? You what? I'm abusive? I'm not an abusive person. Why would I be, oh, that behavior is abusive behavior. Like, if I really lay it out and I'm clinical about it, what I just did was abusive behavior. Mm. Like, Get home from work and Kirsty goes, How was your day? And I, and I was, <laughs> and uh, she goes, Why are you angry? And I yelled and I said, I'm not fucking angry as my fist went through the cupboard door. Now, the cupboard door is currently hanging on hinges. And I, no, James, you know, you're not angry at all, dude. <laughs> <It's> the <laughs> cupboard door hanging there for you know, we'll give that away. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. The issue was Abby was two years old, standing two meters from me, eyes like dinner plates. Now those eyes became my barometer every time they went like, cause I I'd lost connection to my emotion. I didn't know what I, I thought, thought there was five emotions, fired up, pissed off, shattered and numb. There you go. I didn't even count. It was only four. <laughs> um, so, the, and, and I needed Abby's help to give me this, to, re, to, to make me aware that I was in that emotion. So I needed to go through that as well. 
But then what I've done in going through it and then helping a lot of people is I've broken things down. I realized the mechanics of them and I've built them into like a platform of understanding. And when one of the biggest issues when people need, when you've got trauma, your safe space has been violated. Now, interestingly enough, most people, if they truly actually had a look at it, a lot of them don't feel safe in a lot of things, including their relationship, you know, um, and so we don't have that that happy place, that safe place inside ourselves anymore. That's one of the first things that it, it can't be reestablished initially because there's too much violation inside, but they, they need to, be, to feel like they can open up to a person. And you might put your hand up, you might go to a psychologist, counselor or whatever, and they're not the right person for you. Then keep going, dude. Like just because the first one didn't work, the, you've put your hand up, the universe will provide. You just have to, to keep going. And that's what I was just lucky enough. I found this amazing person that could help me, but I outgrew him in time. Like he got me to a certain level and that then meant that I needed to take it to the next level. And for me, you know, I, I now understand my spirituality more than ever I did when I used to call myself a Christian, but then I realized Christ never called himself a Christian nor Buddha, a Buddhist, nor Muhammad, a Muslim. So, um, and that was a really big awakening for me to take myself through post-traumatic growth to the next level. So when you when you recover from post traumatic stress, you'll have no you'll have a neutral emotional connection to the incident that caused the initial trauma. If you move into post traumatic growth, it's because you are starting to have a positive experience to the situation because you've gaining the gifts, the lessons. Mm. Now, when you move through post traumatic growth, it's simply that the lessons have become part of who you being, so you who you are. So, um, you know, you go on from there. Now, I've got to say that what I've just given you is actually news to the psychiatric fraternity who still are running around in circles debating as to whether or not you can actually recover from post-traumatic stress i just happened to put my hand up and say well exhibit a you can mate. So you know, <laughs> look you know. at me look at me my hand's not going through the wall of the kitchen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm, re I'm really interested james just to hear about i guess this emo emotional literacy that you've gone through and the the learnings obviously that had that's come up later in life do you think i guess like the stereotypical culture of the military and whatnot it's not as if you can be in touch with your feelings and you know um emotional and and vulnerable or open as you as you say do you think that i don't know it's just like for me i'm a very emotional sort of open person and and i've had experiences with sport and you know with the army and with you know an army camp and the way that they operate and it is so technical and it's and i i just i feel like i struggle with it a lot personally because i think you can still get the outcome whilst being you know being a i don't know how, how you describe it being able to show your emotions and have feelings i guess um do you sort of looking back at your time and your time in the military as a young person, sort of growing up, going through the, the midst of it, do you wish that it was different or do you think that there's a lot of work to be done in that space or is that just how it is? Firstly, don't change your mind. You've got a beautiful soft strength about you and that is amazing. And that's what allows you to connect to people and be the icon that you are. So you actually deeply innately know that what you're saying is right for you, which is amazing. Let me just get you a prop, two ticks. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, it's, uh, I think when we go through this, that uh, it, it is, that's probably what, uh, sorry to interrupt there, James, but 
what Jack's just said there is what we all crave and what we all want to be happy in our own skin to express the person we are. Um, and I guess mm. to match your question is I don't know if that's something of oh, very few people can have that at a young age. I think you nearly need to live life and go through ups and downs and learn who you are to express that, to get the confidence. I don't, I don't know if looking back at 18 year old, any of us, you mm. could do that in a way. I, I don't know. Sorry. I know you just got a prop or something, but I, I think about that a lot mm. because I look back at, and I wish I could be like yeah, we are I all right now. I, I, I know what I need to do and what I, the person I need to be, but I thought I had to be somebody else and, mm. you know, act a certain way. Dale, you nailed it, mate. I don't regret a single day of my life. Mm. I do. The fourth best day of my life has been hit by a roadside bomb. It is trumped by the night I couldn't even bath my own daughter. They, that's the third best night of my life. And it obviously has to fall behind getting married and having kids. Like, I just, I just have to put it that way. I was <laughs> no, the dog you say that, say that mate. <laughs> <laughs> but literally, it, 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 shapes, it shaped me. And it was the, the ball kick which actually told me, James, you're actually running down a path which is not yours. You need to actually own your shit and you need to come back into who you really are. So, no, I totally agree with what you're saying, Dale. And um, we face many false initiations in life because we've lost as a culture the ability to initiate our young people. Um, and I'd speak particularly, uh, I've run um, a rite of passage and youth leadership program for the last 10 years. Um, it's like massive in our culture, the requirement for it, which is why we're having so many issues with um, young men, particularly pushing limits, be that in uh, the world of sexuality, be that drugs, be that cars, whatever it is, they're pushing the envelope because young men want to be taught how to actually take um, to live on the edge. And that flows out in a way in which they, they then go into risk-taking behaviours. And then we get helicopter parenting coming in um, by parents who um, live vicariously through the children through fear. Um, helicopter parenting is all about fear uh, and overprotection causing control. Um, and interestingly enough, my my oldest daughter turned to me the other day and said, you know, that controlling parents create the best liars. And yeah, I yeah, laughed yeah. myself. That's, that's very true. It's, it's a very <laughs> astute observation. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So to come back to your point, though, Jack, about emotions, uh, which actually, I think, Dale, you actually answered it so beautifully. Unless you really are confident within who yourself, uh, you will struggle to actually show emotions because you'd be too worried about what everyone else is thinking of you. So self-confidence breeds silence. Yeah. Just think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, I mean, I, I just relate that to a footy environment and it's like, it's so true. It's like, it's this way or the highway. You know, if someone has an opposing view, it's like to, to the coach or the whoever it is, the alpha sort of male, it's like you're, it's like you're coming at me as a person and my power. It's like, you know, um, and so no one speaks up oh. or no one has, yeah. I, I actually worked with um, quite a few professional athletes, particularly AFL and NRL players. And one AFL captain that I was working with, he uh, got suspended um, on the last game of preseason. And the reason why he got suspended was because his team wasn't stepping up. And I, I said, right, so what actually happened? Now, he didn't speak to me for 10 weeks between the incident. Why wouldn't he have spoken to me for 10 weeks? Because you're right. <laughs> True, but no, it's not about me. It's, it's, it's shame and guilt. He was, yeah. he was yeah. too ashamed and, and, and felt guilt to inside, but no one explained. No, one, it all got swept under the carpet in the um, club. I said, Does anyone talk to you about this? Like, have you had a chat to the head coach? No, you haven't had a chat to the head coach about the captain 
getting suspended before the first game. He can't play the first game of the season. You haven't had a... No. Okay, so let's just dissect this. What happened? He says, well, the team just didn't get off the plane. And so, so what, how did you feel? And he said, I was, I was trying to get them up and running. So what did you do from that? And he said, I felt powerless. I felt powerless to in, in, inject myself on the ground. And he leads through his performance. That's how he leads. Anyway, so I went up for a, a contest and I just happened to take a guy's head off. Why did you take the guy's head off? Because I was angry. Why were you angry? Because I couldn't communicate. Anger gets locked jaw, like people who get uh, hold anger, just get really tight jaws, grind teeth. Bad breath comes um, from bile. It's because anger's held in the um, the gallbladder and the liver. And um, But the whole point, he was saying, <laughs> well, um, anger's about wanting change. So it's not bad to be feeling angry. Anger was calling him that change needs to happen. So I said, did you communicate to your leadership group? No. He felt isolated, powerless. So he needed to inject himself the way he did it was through force, takes this guy's head off, gets suspended. Mm. And so he started to unravel all this. And he says, so what I need to do, I need to talk more. Mm. Yes, I need to feel, understand what that feeling is telling me. And then I need to talk to my leadership team so I don't feel isolated. So I feel like we can come together. I said, imagine the captain of this club standing in front of 18-year-old rookies and the captain owns his shit by saying, I apologize to you for getting suspended. And this is why, because I didn't own my anger. I should have communicated better. My vow to you is this is my, my mantra from now on. Mm. Fuck, that is huge. Mm, like that is, that is that's balls massive. in steel. Yeah. It starts at the top too, doesn't it? Because you see your leaders, you see your coach and your captain. And if they show that, then all of a sudden everyone else feels comfortable. Whereas if it's the opposite, if you if the leaders are sort of showing this like, you know, sweep it all under the carpet, um, you know, we got to be tough, macho, keep it all in. There's no one, no one underneath is going to step up and go, oh, you know, yeah, but does sorry, so James. But sorry, that one. Does that you know? Does that again come back to what I just said before with that leader, the captain? You've got oh, you've got your army. Wow, he's got his army. James, does that like what Jack was talking about? And you, um, does did that captain? He 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 learned from that experience, and it might have been different the next time. Could he have dealt with it differently because he hadn't? been through that experience, like what I was talking about before with being comfortable to express the way you are and different things like that. Is that something, unless you feel something and live through it, like you went through those really dark days to get the light at the end of the tunnel, like you need to nearly have that experience, sit through that to then realise, like, because you can't just, you couldn't just tell that captain the pre-season game, you need to communicate more, don't hit that bloke in the head. But that that wouldn't have worked. Oh, we'd already talked about it. Yeah. We, we, we had literally talked about communication. Yeah. Was, I actually asked all these coaches, what does he need to work on? Communication. <laughs> so we were we were in Dale, you're dead right, my brother. He and to even put it to an even further extreme example, I was working with a guy one day who was an air conditioning mechanic out of the mines. And he's a soul of the earth guy, man. He was just amazing. And he came in, had mass anger. We released that. Um, he just, he realized he was a musician. He needed to get back more into the flow of music and everything. Anyway, he was coming, he uh, rang me about two years later and said, Hey, can I come and do some, some further work? And I said, yeah, sure. So I said, what's been going on? He said, well, I just went to a music festival in the old days. You know, Cause he had a bit of a drug problem before he met me. And, um, in the old days, I just would have got an eight ball and, and I would have just gone into my tent chopped up and, and, uh, then gone into the festival. Well, I, 
I thought that's the way you do festivals. So I, I know I haven't touched it in ages. So I went and got an eight ball and I went in my tent and chopped up. And then all of a sudden I'm out for three days. It was the, I went to really bad, vicious cycle. Um, just internally, like I thought I was going to die. Uh, it was just a really, really bad experience. And he struggled to tell me, I said, why, why did you struggle to tell me the story? He says, I thought you judged me. I said, dude, have you seen my life? Like, fuck, how can I judge anyone? But, um, <laughs> But the, the point of the matter is you needed to go through this. And he actually came to an understanding. He needed to go. That was the best thousand bucks investment he could have got because he needed to show that that was not his path anymore. Mm. So who am I to judge him that he took an illicit drug? Mm. I don't care. He's actually so much better for it. Now, yep, yeah, sure. We can go, oh, but you know, all the risks involved and it's a, it's a legal drug. Yeah. Just, can you stop judging for a moment, yeah. please? Mm. The reason why we are in our society so bent up, so narcissistic, so fucked up in so many respects is because everyone judges. Yeah. So everyone's got a fucking asshole. Everyone's got an opinion. Stop it. <laughs> um, so this is it. And, and when you do that, your children will start listening. Parents shut the fuck up. <laughs> Like seriously, parents, one of the best things you can do, shut the fuck up because what you will do is allow your children to speak who they are. And if you allow yourself to listen, you will simply be mesmerized. You can't help but be because of the amazingness of like who a human being is. Can I tell you a story? James, the floor is yours, mate. Yeah. We're, we're sitting here. Here we go. World. We got the helmet. Yes, get it out. Get that chin strap done up, mate. Ah, but it doesn't have the actual inner, which had the chin strap. Like, this is the outer. <laughs> so that's about two kilos of Kevlar, yeah? So that was found 80 meters from my vehicle. That's how far it got blown. Wow. Now, the re really cool thing is it doesn't actually have a dent on it, which is really quite funny. <laughs> um, but the guys all found it. They signed it for me. Um, they found it the, the next day. Um, so I was in that incident site for 10 hours. I refused casualty evacuation. They had a US Blackhawk helicopter medical evacuation helicopter land on the incident within 50, with 18 minutes of the first bomb going off. They, people bag the Americans out, mate. I was fought next to a lot of them and they're like some seriously incredible individuals. And I've also had guns leveled at me by Americans that thought I was an Iraqi, but I'm going, dude, I'm actually on your side. Like, why are you trying to shoot me? So I've had both sides, but there's some incredible <laughs> courage demonstrated by them. Um, and these, these Black Hawk helicopter men, they, they took off without knowing exactly where they're going to land. And they flew straight over the tops of houses over militia center to get to us, to get our men out. And my boss goes, do you need to go? And I, my arm was dead. Like my arm, my right arm didn't work. Um, it's just, it was the weirdest experience. It was just literally hanging there dead. Uh, had a lot of shrapnel in it, um, perforated, et cetera. Uh, I had shrapnel in my head that was um, causing a bit of blood to come that medic was a bit worried about. And I just told him, Chatty, I love you, mate. I, I really, I really appreciate you trying to take off and um, take care of me, but shut the fuck up and sit the fuck down for a bit. I've got a job to do. And I so I refused casualty evacuation and then we, we fought our way out after 10 hours. Now that that's, that's one situation, you know, and you find the, the helmet. I couldn't go uh, on a mission for another couple of weeks because my arm didn't work until I got movement back in. And they were, they were actually calling to send me home. And my boss stepped in and said, James knows what's he doing. He, he's fine. And so the media were flying into town and I just did not want to bar on them. So I just said, I'm going on a mission. And someone said, you can't, you can't shoot a gun. So I grabbed the gun, took it down the range, shot it, threw the gun back at him and said, there you go, you bloody idiots. <laughs> um, and uh, then I rolled on a mission and like, uh, I was, we were, 
was 63 degrees in the shade in Iraq the time we were there. Like we also had zero in the desert as well, but um, during the winter, but I'd never seen the planet get that hot. And I was in a security conference um, meeting for the whole province. I was the the chief military commander for the coalition forces in our, our province. And I was there, um, all the security heads were there, the governor of the province and everything were there for four hours. So my men are standing outside on century for four hours in 60 to 30 degree heat. I come out, jump in my vehicle, we go to move out, go through a little gate um, and straight ahead of us was this laneway, but we were turning the left. And the vehicle in front of me had a machine gunner in his rear right um, portal and he saw it. I didn't quite see it until um, Smitty engaged, but a guy came out and lined me out with a rocket propel grenade that I was a sitting duck because I was just nowhere to go right in the middle of the gateway. And Smitty put down a burst of fire, called the guy, uh, the guy recalled, uh, released the rocket straight across the actual laneway, blew up a poor lady's kitchen. They found the tail fin of the rocket in her fridge. I've actually got a photo of me with my tail fin of the rocket that they found in the fridge. How um, long after you... Your bomb went it's off. Like two or three weeks. Yeah. So, <laughs> and do you know the weirdest thing? Like those two missions, I went in just before going on mission. I said to my operations officer, hey, Shami, I'm feeling really sick in the guts. And cheese, we don't talk about this. Cheese is my nickname. Um, cheese, we don't talk about this. Here, have a coffee and we'll sit down and watch the models channel. So one of the key ways you suppress emotions is distraction. Well, there's two amazing yeah, distractions right there. <laughs> uh, and mood alter, coffee, stimulant, mood altering, distraction with the model. So, but then I, I, when I got back after the bomb, he just looks at me in the eye and goes, you're fucking nuts. And so anyway, I, the next time I was going on this, this first mission afterwards, I went up to him and said, man, I'm feeling something. He says, geez, I told you we don't talk about this. <laughs> Four hours later over the radio, this is 2-9, which is my call sign. This is 2-9, contact weighed out, and I knew Shami was going, oh, jeez, what are you doing? Listen and, to your uh, instincts. Listen to your gut. Listen, listen to the guts. That's the thing. We actually yeah. nullify our intuition. But anyway, so this whole point is Smitty saved my life. Now, he had every reason not to be on point, not to be looking in that moment. And so we needed to get sort that situation out. And and so if you stick in the township, like we're not there to, to go hammer and tong and, and sort and, and, you know, grab this guy, kill him and we'll capture him or whatever, because we actually hurt too many people. So the best thing to do is actually get ourselves out of there um, in the safest way. So I did that and I took us right out into the, the desert and put us into a big ring of steel where no one's getting within 10 kilometers because of our senses. And I just said, everyone inside. And I, on that mission, I rolled with 250 people and I was not the highest ranking officer, but I was the senior commander because I was in charge of, of, um, the protection. So that means I'm, I'm the, everyone does what I say. And so I just said everyone inside and I took all my body armor off, all my weapons, everything. I just went clean skin and I said, Smith, come here. And I got private Smith out to stand next to me. And I just looked him in the eye and I said, what you did today is the reason why I can go home to my wife and my child. You wow. saved my life. And I cried. And Kirsty pointed out to me the other day, the only time I actually truly get emotional about Iraq is when I talk about my soldiers. Because they were incredible. And I don't care what you say about why we did it or whatever. I know why we're there. And it ain't what everyone was told. That doesn't matter. I had to own that. I had to go through the shame and guilt and the anger all about that to come to a place of peace with that. I'm fine. I'm completely com comfortable with that. I don't regret a moment. 
but these people are like really amazing people. Yes, they've got all things about life. They go through their all the trials and tribulations. They're good, they're bad. It doesn't matter. Smitty saved my life on that day. And I turned to the rest of the everyone in that group and I said, you guys know we're here under false pretenses. I don't give a rat's ass. The only reason why we will get home is because we have got each other's back, just like Smitty had mine today. I thank you for the amazing people you are and the amazing job you're doing. Now, out of that or standing stoic for 10 hours, which one do you reckon my soldiers remember? Well, I know what they remember, but so yeah. that, that, well, you call it openness, um, vulnerability, whatever it is, you, as you, when you took everything off and you let your emotions out, that's a sign. That's a superpower. That's leadership right there. Um, how do you look back at that now, James? And like you were saying, you know, when you're looking in the mirror after, you know, going from the bath, like when you're back home and you couldn't cry, then you couldn't share any emotion, but you could share emotion for other things. Do you ever reflect on that? That like probably the area you should have been able to with your family. Uh, and I'm just thinking myself, I find it, it's so much easier to focus on other people or different things like that. But when it's on you, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, it's so much harder. Do you think about that, that you were able to open up and be vulnerable and whatever you want to call it, in the middle of the desert in Iraq, but then in your own home with your family, you couldn't? Yeah, and the, the funny thing is I never hid anything from my family, but the, the thing was I was accidentally in touch with my emotions. There's a difference between being really emotionally literate and emotionally intimate. Um, if I want to speak to a Spaniard, I, like, for instance, I'll just wind back. I had a 38-year-old bloke come around my campfire from Melbourne not too long ago. And he goes, tears running down his eyes. He goes, James, I'm 38. I've got an amazing wife. I've got incredible kids. That everyone loves me. I just can't communicate to them. And he's crying. And I said, okay, so what I'm understanding you're saying is you're 38, you've got an amazing wife, a loving family, two incredible kids, but you feel you just can't communicate with them. He's going, yeah. And I said, well, you're an amazing communicator. Because I understood what he was saying. Yeah. yeah. But I said, now your issue is that you don't feel like you can communicate what you want to. So if you want to speak to a Spaniard, you've got to know Spanish. If you want to connect, you've got to know the language of emotion. So emotional literacy is understanding anger is not a bad emotion. The reason why we've categorized it, that is turn on the six o'clock news mm. and the way the media works is the first five articles will be anger, sadness, fear, shame, guilt. And I've done studies in this um, and actually I was trained by the military in this. <laughs> um, how to inside, again, inside a population's head and stuff with it. So they actually believe what you're saying. Um, well, it's called watch the news. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but the thing is like, we've been taught that anger is bad. No, it's the negative consequences that are caused because of the inappropriate expression of an emotion. And that's what we then label the emotion as opposed to understanding the emotion and then being able to read it and express it appropriately where no one is hurt, undermined mm. or demeaned in any way. And that's the yeah. key with any expressive emotion no one must be hurt, undermined, or demeaned in any way. Otherwise, two other buckets of emotion, shame and guilt, will fill up. Mm. And that's so, a hard, that's a hard thing to communicate to someone. If if someone's done something that you don't like, it's a real skill to be able to communicate that in a way to make sure that they don't feel like you're attacking them or coming at them personally or whatever. Because you know we all have that feeling of defensiveness or whatever it might be. If someone comes or you know. 
but when it's done in the right way and and you know i guess yeah but that that takes a lot of work on yourself takes a lot of work on understanding others and and other people's emotions and you know what sort of makes other people tick doesn't it one of the worst things that's going around in the psychological fraternity at the moment is called trigger avoidance or trigger um uh, management uh, and they get people to understand what their triggers are and attempt to to avoid them or manage them. Because you start trying to manage life control, which actually exacerbates a number of the other symptomology of the condition. Uh, because one who goes through trauma will become tr um, very controlling. Why? Control is the opposite of trust. So they no longer trust life. They have to control life. And you have to go through the wound of powerlessness, which underlies all trauma. You have to heal that to become powerful from the victim to the victor um, to be able to actually integrate these these aspects of life. But um, And to get over trauma, realistically, to get to, to, to remove trauma from a person's psyche uh, can actually happen quite quickly. But the issue is if that's done out of the context of their whole life, they progress quite quickly. And that then breeds a whole um, self-doubt about one's own capability. Uh, but to to come back to this point, which I've completely forgotten. <laughs> uh, emotions. Ah, yes, yes, no. So when someone triggers us, yeah. So the, what we normally will say when someone triggers us is that it's their issue. Mm. So we'll project onto the other person, not realizing the emotional trigger is actually in me. Now, two people can look at the exact same situation and go walk away with two distinctly different things. And you'll actually look at a friend and go, why were you triggered? They weren't actually saying anything about you right then. They're actually talking about themselves. And so what actually happens is we make ourselves the center of the universe instead of, instead of being the center of my universe. Mm -hmm. So if I am triggered in any way, shape or form by anyone, that is now my responsibility to find out what emotional trigger within me, which is a subconscious program, caused that mental, emotional and physical reaction. Because it is mental, emotional and physical, all three aspects of that um, will react in some way, shape or form. So when I go into, I understand that there's a gift right there. So this person who I might call my biggest adversary, the person who really pisses me off the most, they can come in and they literally can be an angel ready to be understood. Mm. If I allow myself to take personal ownership, my the reason why I actually am alive today in front of you, the reason why I have the emotional intimacy that I do, the reason why I have a relationship with my family that I do, the reason why I'm living the life completely that way I am is because I've owned my shit. And I do it every single day. Every single day I'm working at myself, enjoying now the process, loving the process of growth. But that means that no, I can't be bullied anymore. This whole thing about bullying is, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's no, I'm not sorry, actually. I'll remove that sentence from James's lexicon. Um, uh, the reason why we're having so much issue with bullying is because we've got to understand that if, if you want to not be bullied, you've got to own the bully inside yourself. And, because of victim consciousness, people are pussyfoot around too much. This is where men have a, the emasculation of society, which has happened extensively through everything from the um, toxic masculinity statement, which does not exist. There is no such thing as toxic masculinity. There is something as unbalanced masculinity causing a toxic effect. But there is unbalanced femininity causing a toxic effect, including overmothering opening your womb to your, your your child for a long time and not closing energetically your womb, which causes then a mother wound into it. Most men have a more of a mother wound than they do a father wound, but it's something that we're not willing to talk about because people believe that we're not able to talk about it because they think it's blaming. I'm not blaming anyone. I work with many mothers who are just the most, mother is the best, most amazing job in the world. Like 
every birthday I actually celebrate my mother. And I think she's the most amazing character to actually have been able to carry me for nine months and then help me to, to set me up. I, I watch my wife, who's literally the most amazing mother, who had to step up when I stepped down. I took my pants off in the relationship because not for any sexual thing, I'll give you the big tip. It was because, <laughs> because I just had nothing left in life. And she stood up. She held the family together. She was the rock for our family when I, being the male, couldn't do that. And then, you know, she helped me go through the process of healing because she helped herself heal as well. And so we come back together in such a powerful interaction. It's like next level because we've learned the lesson. So I'm, I'm not against, I'm not against anyone. I'm just again, I'm all for personal ownership. So if a person is triggering me, then what I want to do is I want to understand why, because that person can be the biggest gift and that's personal ownership. Mm. The outside was, there's an old adage, like it's an old mystery school adage it comes from the, um, the school of hermeticism. And it says as above, so below as external, so internal. And the Christians will say as in heaven, so on earth. And what they're actually saying is what I see in the outside world is a direct reflection of what's on my internal world. Now, how does this psychologically and emotionally work? Well, just throw on angry glasses and what does the world look like? It looks <laughs> like a world of anger. You can decide how you see things, can't you? You can make exactly. Yeah. No one, no one does that for you. Do you know what I mean? No. Like, if you want to walk into a place and, like, we're talking a lot about judgment today. If you want to find issues with somebody or something, it's very easy to. But you can also find positives, yeah. or you can be curious about that. Yeah. Um, that ownership is exactly the same thing unless you're self-aware to take that ownership you're probably going to be judging other people to find issues that you know you've got in yourself it's a vicious cycle well you mentioned leadership before dale and and like over my time what i've done is i've developed my own form of leadership called harmonic leadership and like i personally believe sustainability must die because sustainability is based in a lack mentality mindset which therefore, if you try and sustain, you're always just trying to keep yourself above water. Nature doesn't sustain itself. Nature thrives. And thriving mentality is about being harmonic. It's about accepting the cycle of, of life, which includes death and then birth. Um, and if you just look at the last three years, it's shown us the fear of death, which actually then froze a society. So uh, understanding this, it comes down to three things. Harmonic leadership is three aspects. First, I must purify myself. Then I can unify my team and then I can amplify my effect. It's literally that simple, but it's like, there's a lot to purifying yourself. In the ancient days, the Christian mystics would say, sanctify before being illuminated. So before talking to God, I must purify myself. That's what they would say. Hey, going back so, clean. Mm. Yeah, yes, ex exactly right. Make sure it's squared away. And then like, I'll get other people that have the same values as me in my team instead of, you know, having this act of who I have to be seen as turning up with brush and bravado and it really not being you, then I'll attract other people into my team and then wonder why my team is dysfunctional mm. because we've got a bunch of egoic idiots who are running around, like just trying to compete against each other instead of, Hey, this is who I am. I want to compete with you because Jack, you're an amazing master of your trade. And I know if I compete with you, I'm going to become so much better at this. And I want from that, I want you to come so much better than this. And like together, we just get this amazing passion about whatever we're mastering. Yeah. Remember, perfectionism is the shadow side of mastery. So much, of, so much of life we want to master, we want to sink our teeth into. And that comes with purifying self. Then I unify my team. And then I'll, I'll be actually able to have an amazing amplified effect 
which will be harmonic into the world, not destructive with collateral damage. Mm. I'm interested just quickly. I know if we've, we've got a little bit more time. <laughs> yeah, we just... do. James, have you got anywhere to be? Because we're, <laughs> we're taking up a lot of time. Yeah. I could talk questions all day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I'd love to hear about, I guess, it sounds like religion was a big part of your life and your dad and, and yourself, I think, um, from what I've heard. Did your... What was your view on religion like, I guess, pre and post going to war? Did it change? Um, and, yeah, I guess, what? how did the military affect affect that? I, um, yeah. Yeah, good question. There's a massive Christian military fellowship, um, an undercurrent, a sub-organisation within the military, which is... Um, is quite large. I never got involved in it um, in the military. Actually, as a young kid, I lost my faith because I saw the pain my father was in trying to, you know, he would spend hours sitting there on a Saturday night writing a sermon for six people in his old church up in Avenal, um, just south of Shepparton. Yeah, love um, the world. <laughs> awesome part of the world. That's God's the country they I got call married. it, don't they? 3630, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um and, you know, and I just witnessed, you know, the uh, well, uh, there was a big incident in Seymour um, with the then rector as well, which um, was all about child sex abuse. And and I just witnessed so much stuff. And I went to boarding school and I didn't, re- I, I actually, my my rector, the, the, the padre of the school was my um, under 15s footy coach. And he was just a lovely knockabout guy. And I, so I'd, I'd go to church for him. I didn't realize the, the etymology or the genesis of the word vicar or vicarious, I should say, vicarious means intermediate, so living, um, living through someone. So it, it comes from the word vicar and the etymology of the word vicar is intermediary. And it stems back to um, early Christianity when uh, the church around the ninth century turned around and said, the only way to God is through uh, the church. Um, and yeah, that's a control issue. You can go down that way if you want. It doesn't matter. But um, my whole point is that the word comes, it means intermediary. So I used to think that I had to go through someone to find God. Dad was, Dad told me, you don't. And actually, the whole Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther was all about Martin Luther turned around in the 16th century or 17th century and turned around and said, all you need is the, the Bible and God. The issue is if you don't know how to read the Bible <laughs> um, and you don't know how to experientially connect to God, then you're in a bit of trouble. Up shit creek without a paddle, really. Um, matter of fact, the early Christianity, uh, one of the early sects of Christians were called the Gnostics. And that comes from the word Gnosis, which means an experiential understanding of God. Now in the West, we talk about calling on archangels, which means they're external to us. But in the Eastern traditions, they invoke their deities. They bring the energy up through them. Now, neither neither's right nor wrong. They're just two ways of approaching the same situation. I tried like hell to find god in church try and find christ because i i knew i had a calling to him and then i joined the military and i forgot all about it matter of fact i didn't want to be associated with those nerds that were christians i became a real like um a, a real buddy priest son but everyone found out i was a bloody clergy son so they thought oh he must be into bible study and i was going oh, no nah. i'm into footy matter of fact if i really own it i got a degree at the defense academy in alcoholism aussie rules that's pretty much what alcoholism with aussie probably, rules <laughs> probably with dis- distinction grade as well um that's <laughs> <laughs> one of the only distinctions i got in academics so the, the point there was um it I was only doing it because someone told me I had to do it. Mm. And any time, like I was only at Sunday school because someone told me I had to be, it wasn't until 
like I put it, it was 2010 when my healing journey, I, I made this the delineation between religion and spirituality. And if you actually break down a religion, what is religion? Religion is looking at one individual who becomes enlightened and they never write, by the way, the, the actual person never writes. It's always the disciples who look at the path that this person's done. They break it down and say, this is the creed. Now that can go on and become dogma if you want or whatever, and then become fanatical. But remember, fanaticism breeds rigidity. Rigidity weakens resilience and destroys harmony. So whatever form of fanaticism will always weaken resilience and destroy harmony. The um the point about it is uh, that what I, I realized, I went to, I had a real deep understanding and dive into Buddhism. They talk about the middle way and, and also the four noble truths, like life is, um, four noble truths are all about attachment and suffering. A really amazing um, understanding of, of how we cause so much pain in ourselves. And so I, I went down into all these different paths and I went east, like, like a lot of people do, you know, I didn't go and bother learning Sanskrit or anything like that, but namaste to you all. Um, the point about it is that when I actually came back to my own roots and I found out more about myself, I became really desiring a, a connection to the first nation people. Like I stand as James. Like, I was born amongst the Jatmalang. I grew up amongst the Dungarang. Uh, my totem is the Wedgetail Eagle. Uh, I went to boarding school amongst the Rajri. I trained amongst the Lungawal. Uh, I saw military service amongst the, the Larrakia tribe. Uh, I was bloodied by the Beni Shaid, sorry, the Beni, um, Beni Saeed and the El Farud. Uh, I came back to, uh, the, the Nungawal people, but realistically did my healing amongst the Gubby Gubby. And then I found home tree amongst the Bungajong. I stand as James, son of James. My clan is green shields and we are the protectors of the Emerald Flame. That is who I am. And that was my 15 year old daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and that is who I am. Because I found myself, I found my home tree. Mm. Um, I've gone down so many scientific, spiritual paths to develop my philosophy of life, mm. to balance myself out. Uh, and I had to do that myself. And I've therefore become not fixated or fanatical about anything, which is why I don't judge. Matter of fact, deep level acceptance is, is my humble opinion is the way forward. Powerful. It's, 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 um, it's so, it's, I guess, anything in life, with meaning you have to choose to want to do it yourself you have to want to you know and i think that's so right like early in my life definitely i do the same thing it's like you go to church because you think it's the right thing to do or you're told to do it or you, you think it's what people you know what you're supposed to do but as you get older you start to realize like we're all just little bloody organisms out in this floating rock you know it's like do what you feel is right and what you want to do and what you, you know, and what connects with you. And then that carries so much more meaning because, you know, you believe it. And what I've found is people that want to like, people come to me often to, well, I do a lot of leadership work, but then I find out that in organizations, the level of depression and adverse mental conditions is rancid. Mm. And I, I turn to the organization. I say, this is your normal. And I say, yeah. And I said, have you got an, an employer assistance program? Yeah. Does anyone use it? No. And it's like my godfather. Like, so what I actually found in leadership, we're spending so much time in purifying self and that's all bringing them up, finding out who they are. And, and part of finding out who I am is my connection. Now that can be to God. It can be Allah. It can be Jesus. It can be my true self, my king or my queen. 
Mm. That's that's an archetypal psychology where you would go is to to deeply go into my true self, my king or my queen, my true essence. Um, by the way, in about the 12th century, uh, Catholicism removed soul from lexicon. So it just was spirit and body. And the, the thing in the past that was connecting the two was this term soul, which therefore meant that, that one was completely separate from the other. And the only way to get from the body to the to the spirit was through the the church uh, vicariously. So um, the the point that, I, and I don't hold any uh, issue with the Catholic faith or what. It's actually, if you look at it, it's actually got some amazing beauty in it. Mm. Um, but like like all religions do, don't they? It's like all, they all have yeah, these exactly beautiful right. messages in some way, but yeah. And so, but come back to your point, Jack. Like, I've got to find my own. I can't live vicariously through someone else. And Christ wouldn't want that for you. Like, nor would Buddha. Buddha would d- dismiss that, like, straight out of sight. Um, so yeah, this is this is the thing. I've, I've, got, to, I've got to become a p- personified version of me, which is why I started to have epicness personified, by the way, if you want to get on board. I've been going 10 years trying to make this viral. I'm still not there. I think it's still on <laughs> and they're all mine. But You'll get it there. You'll get it for me. But the thing is, when you personify that, you just become a living expression of it rather than, you know, I saw a lot of 930 Sunday Christians. And I think that doesn't do any any good for you nor what you actually attempt to represent. It's a bit, I, I choose to be a living example of what I, I believe. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So true. Now, Obviously, James, you have spoken about so many different things. If people can't relate to one aspect of what you've spoken about, I really, you probably need to listen again because your story and the way you have uh, owned owned it, I think that's Mm. probably the biggest thing in life. You have to own it. If something's not going right for you, no one's going to change it for you. It doesn't matter what book you read, what podcast, even though this is a great podcast, nearly 10 episodes, James. Um, (laughs) No one. On your knackers. No one is going to do it for you, but you are obviously helping a lot of people. And um, I know my father and uh, Daron Shepard, and they could not speak more highly of the work you do. So you obviously work with your wife, Christy, and, you know, the, where do people go if they want to, you know, because you work with kids, you work with adults, you work with couples, retreats, leaders. Where can we contact you to obviously start that conversation? Um. I- like I share a lot on social media. So James Greenshield, just reach out and connect with Facebook. And I just love to, when, I, when I've been working with someone or an organization and I see a, a um, systemic issue, I'll go on and I'll actually speak to it. Or I had a guy from Norway the other day say, James, can you speak to this? And they sent me a podcast of an Australian guy um, owning his control issues. And he asked me to speak to control. So I, do, I put a lot of that on social media, but um, the, we, we run an organization called Emergent Leaders Foundation, and it's just that website, emergentleadersfoundation.org. Uh, and also there's my website, just jamesgreenshields.com. Um, so yeah, reach out. We, we do a lot of organizational leadership work. We're massive into actually, um, building communities. And this is actually where I've, I've, I'm cutting it back on a lot of what I've been doing, um, and focusing it now onto assisting communities, uh, build the infrastructure for themselves. And for instance, what I found uh, in a lot of my tools, like we ran a put your hand up campaign in 2016 through 2019. Um, we ran from uh, Cairns to Perth, one day workshops, uh, bringing people together, helping them give a, a, a mental health day for want of a better term, 
getting them to put their hand up and then we bring in their community organizations, which are already there in the community embedded, helping people so that they could actually realize they had a support network. And what I realized during that time was so many communities are now over giving money to charities, to the big six mental health charities and wondering why nothing's changing, why they have to then the next week go and take another son down from the rafters in their mate's garage. Um, and, you know, one of the first things they were asking me was, you know, where's this money going? And realistically, I said, it's a gold coin donation, mate, enough to give me enough money to get a plane trip to the next place so I can get gold coin donation to get to the next place. That's where your money's going. And so I, they were like a bit astounded by that. And and I said to the, I said to myself, I've got, to, I've got to learn and understand. So that went into incubation for a few years. And so what we've now started is this community empowerment project where, we want to go into like-minded communities that have people with drive and passion for their community to help them build the natural organic infrastructure within themselves to actually, you know, run rite of passage programs for the community, run, um, you know, campfires that are of credibility and, and healing um, and do that all in the community. So the business leaders can give to their community, can give to their, to, to actually helping their community get up and running Long uh, one of the premises change. exactly and then the community can thrive and we call that the community and that's that's where i'm uh, that and our organizational leadership is where I'm, I'm vectoring a lot of our work at the moment yeah beautiful well for listeners this is episode number nine as we've mentioned a few times <laughs> <laughs> um, i'll have links for uh, the foundation and obviously james's website where you can reach out and um if something has struck a chord with you today start that conversation um I know James is always, yeah. I don't know if it's, you're trying to be nice to me, old man, or something like that, but you've always been kind to me, James. We've never met. Um, I'm sure that would be a nice thing one day. But uh, it, yeah, I, well, I reckon. I'd love to. I could sit down for another four hours. <laughs> um, but, my, my campfire, guys. What, what we need to do is we need to set up a campfire, three of us. It'll be awesome. It. We'll bring anyone. We'll just, we'll go bush. Oh, I'd love It'd to. Be awesome. I reckon that's uh, definitely on the cards. Let's do it. Yeah. For sure. On I, your I knackers. that's right (laughs) well everybody thanks so much and uh, more importantly james thank you for your time once again and mate your story is inspirational so if you're listening to this and you're like wow share it with somebody else because uh the more people that can hear these messages um as a society we need it in general i feel so um yeah mate thanks once again you're a bloody legend thanks james thanks Dale, thanks to the work you're doing, mate. Like, I really take my hat off to all the stuff that you're doing with young people. Getting out, Jack, I've just met you, but if you are hanging with this dude, he actually... <laughs> under the wing, mate, under the wing. <laughs> but it also, like, just in the questions you ask and the observations you made about me, like, you, you're an amazing guy. So to the two of you, I just want to acknowledge the work that both you are doing. And, and please, like, get on board with this podcast, subscribe, and not only subscribe, share it. Like, share the message of these two gentlemen. It's awesome. Thanks, Thanks. Uh, what a way to finish that.